You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collective Works, Volume 323 by Rudolf Steiner. Here it is entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy. It's known as the third scientific course given to the Waldorf School teachers. Eighteen lectures presented in Stuttgart, Germany, January 1st through the 18th of 1921. Translated by Frederick Amrin. It is also known as the relationship of the various scientific disciplines in astronomy. 18 lectures. This is Lecture 1, given January 1, 1921. My dear friends, today I would like to make some introductory remarks regarding the topic we'll be taking up over the next few days. I want you to understand the purpose of these talks right from the outset. It won't be my task during the following days to deal with any narrowly defined subfield within science. Rather, I'll try to provide various wider views, while having in mind quite a specific goal in relation to science. For that reason, please don't describe this as an astronomy course. It isn't meant to be that. But it will deal with something that I feel is especially important for us to consider at this time. That's why I've given this course the title Interdisciplinary Astronomy, and today I want to discuss just what it is I mean by this title. The fact is that over a relatively short time, much will have to be changed within what we call the sphere of science if we want to avoid a complete decline. Certain scientific disciplines and sub-disciplines, Wissenschaftsmassen, which are now comprised under various headings and have been institutionalized under those headings in our mainstream schools, will have to be taken out of their current context and classified according to very different aspects. That will require a far-reaching reorganization of our scientific disciplines. The current division is entirely inadequate to a worldview that accords with reality, and yet our modern world holds so firmly to such traditional classifications that it uses them to decide who should occupy the professorial chairs in our universities. People confine themselves, for the most part, to dividing the existing circumscribed fields of science into yet further disciplines and sub-disciplines, and then they look to the specialists or experts as they are called. But we have to effect a radical change in the pursuit of science by instituting entirely new categories within which things that are dealt with in zoology or physiology or even, let's say, in epistemology today, will be gathered together within a newly emerging discipline. The older forms of scientific classification, often extremely abstract, will have to die out, and entirely new scientific combinations will have to arise. This change will meet with great resistance initially, 
because people today are trained in scientific specializations, and it will be difficult for them to build a bridge to what they'll urgently need in order to conduct interdisciplinary research in accordance with reality. Today we have a science of astronomy, of physics, of chemistry, of philosophy. We have a science of biology, of mathematics, and so on. We might go so far as to say that specializations have been formed mostly so that the various specialists will not have to work so hard in order to become well-grounded in their subject. Then they don't have too much to do in mastering all the relevant literature, which, as we know, is expanding at an accelerating pace. But what's really needed is to create new disciplines and sub-disciplines that conjoin quite different things, including simultaneously something from astronomy, perhaps, and something from biology, and so on. In order for this to happen, the conduct and the institutions of science will have to be fundamentally restructured. Therefore, what we term spiritual science, which does indeed aim to be of a universal nature, has to work precisely in this direction. It has to undertake as its special mission to work in this direction. For we simply can't get any further with the established division of the disciplines. Our universities stand in the world today in a way that's really quite estranged from life. They turn out mathematicians, physiologists, and philosophers, but none of them have any real relationship to the world. They can't do anything except work in their narrowly confined spheres, putting before us worldviews that become more and more abstract and conform less and less to any possible reality. It's the change just described, a profound need of our times, that I want to address in these lectures. I'd like you to see how impossible it will be to continue the older classifications in the long run, and therefore I want to show how other scientific disciplines of the most varied kinds that currently take no account of astronomy are, nevertheless, related to astronomy, to knowledge of the universe in its spatial aspect. Certain astronomical facts will have to be taken into account in other scientific disciplines as well, so that we might learn to master those other fields in a way that conforms to reality. The task of these lectures is, therefore, to build a bridge from the different fields of scientific thought to the field of astronomy, so that the archetypal qualities of space and motion can manifest themselves in the right way within the various scientific disciplines. Just so there's no misunderstanding, I'd like to make one more remark about method. You see, the manner of presenting scientific facts that's customary nowadays will have to undergo a considerable change, because it actually arises out of the very scientific structure that needs to be superseded. When today's specialists encounter facts that are somewhat remote from their understanding, remote only because they don't meet with them at all within their own discipline, the usual response is, quote, you've made an assertion, but you haven't proved it, close quote. 
Yet in scientific work it's often quite unavoidable that statements be made at first purely as results of observation, and then verified later, as more and more facts are adduced to support them. So it would be wrong to assume, for instance, that right at the beginning of a discourse someone could object and say, quote, you haven't proven anything, close quote. It will be proved, verified in due time, but much will first have to be presented simply from observation, so that the right concept, the right idea can be created. And so I ask you to take these lectures as a whole, and to look in the last lectures for the clear evidence that demonstrates many things which seem in the first lectures to be mere assertions. Many things will then be verified, but meanwhile I will have to handle them in such a way as to create needed concepts and ideas that were altogether absent at the outset. Astronomy as we know it today, even including the domain of astrophysics, is fundamentally a modern creation. Before the time of Copernicus and of Galileo, the thinking that was brought to bear upon astronomical phenomena was fundamentally different from the way we think today. It's extraordinarily difficult for us even to characterize the quality of astronomical thought in, say, the 13th and 14th centuries, because this way of thinking has become completely foreign to us in the modern world. We live entirely within the ideas that have been formed since the time of Galileo, Kepler, and Copernicus. And from a certain point of view, that's perfectly appropriate. Their ideas that treat the distant phenomena of universal space, insofar as they're concerned with astronomy, in a mathematical and mechanical way. Today we think of these phenomena in terms of mathematics and mechanics. In observing the phenomena, we base our ideas upon what we've acquired from an abstract mathematical science or an abstract science of mechanics. We calculate distances, movements, and forces. But the qualitative outlook still in existence in the 13th and 14th centuries, which distinguished individualities in the stars and individuality of Jupiter, of Saturn, this has become completely lost in modern times. I won't indulge in criticisms of these things at the moment. Rather, let me just point out that the mechanical and mathematical way of treating what we call the domain of astronomy has become the exclusive one. Even if we acquaint ourselves with the stars using popular writings that require no understanding of mathematics or mechanics, we still find astronomy presented even when framed for a general audience entirely in ideas of space and time that are mathematical and mechanical in nature. The minds of our contemporaries, who believe that their judgment is authoritative, harbor no doubts of any kind that this is the only way in which to regard the starry heavens. Anything else, they're convinced, would be merely amateurish. Now, if the question arises as to how it has actually come about that this view of the starry heavens has emerged in the evolution of civilization, the answer of those who regard the modern scientific mode of thought as absolute will be different from the reply that we're able to give as anthroposophists. 
Those who regard the scientific thought of today as something absolutely valid will say, well, you know, earlier ages lacked rigorous scientific ideas. We've achieved that only recently. And that achievement, understanding celestial phenomena in mathematical and mechanical terms, that's what corresponds to objective facts. That's grounded in reality. In other words, it's said that earlier centuries imported something subjective into the phenomena, whereas the modern era has elaborated a rigorously scientific conception that actually corresponds to reality. This is an answer that we cannot give. Rather, we have to adopt the standpoint of the evolution of humanity, which over the course of its existence has introduced various inner forces into its consciousness. We have to say to ourselves, the manner of observing the celestial phenomena that existed among the ancient Babylonians, the Egyptians, perhaps even the Indian people, was due to the particular form that the development of our inner faculties was taking in those times. Those faculties had to be developed according to the same inner necessity with which a child between the tenth and fifteenth year develops a certain faculty, while during another period it will be developing a different one. In the same way, at different times, humanity takes up different kinds of research. Then came the Ptolemaic system, which arose out of a different set of faculties. Then our Copernican system, that arose from yet another set of faculties. The Copernican system didn't develop because humanity had fortunately struggled through to objectivity, whereas before they had all been as children, but because, since the middle of the 15th century, humanity needed for its further evolution just these mathematical, mechanical faculties, which had been lacking earlier. Humanity needs to call forth these mathematical and mechanical capacities for its own sake. And that's why modernity casts the celestial phenomena in the image of the faculties it's trying to cultivate. And humanity will someday see them in yet a different way. When human evolution has drawn up out of the depths of the soul other forces for personal growth and transformation... Thus, it depends upon humanity what gestalt the paradigm takes on. But it's not a question of looking back arrogantly to earlier times when humanity was, in quotes, more childlike, and then thinking that in modern times we have at last struggled through to an objective understanding which can now endure for all future ages. There is something that has become a particular human need in the modern era, and that has rubbed off upon our understanding of science. It's this. We strive on the one hand for ideas that are maximally clear and distinct, namely mathematical ideas, and on the other hand we strive for ideas through which we can surrender as completely as possible to an inner compulsion. We immediately become uncertain and nervous when we don't feel the kind of strong inner compulsion presented, for instance, by the argument of the Pythagorean theorem, but rather sense, let's say, that the figure which has been drawn doesn't decide for us, 
that we have to become active in our souls and decide for ourselves. Then at once we become uncertain and nervous, and we are no longer willing to continue the line of thought. So we say, that's not exact science. Subjectivity enters in. Actually, modern thinkers are dreadfully passive. They're constantly looking for chains of unassailable reasoning that will pull them along like leading strings. Mathematics satisfies this requirement, at least in most cases. And where it doesn't, where thinkers have interposed their own opinions in recent times, well, it really shows. They still believe that they're being precise while they come up with the craziest notions. Thus, in mathematics and mechanics, scientists think they're being guided by leading strings of concepts that are linked together through their own inherent logic. Then they feel as if they had ground under their feet. But the moment they leave that ground, they don't want to go on any further. Concepts that are clear and distinct on the one hand and contain an element of inner compulsion on the other That's what humanity needs at this moment in its evolution. And that's the fundamental reason why the kind of thinking that was developed in the modern science of astronomy took on a gestalt that has become the ruling paradigm. For the moment I'm speaking not about specific facts, but rather about the paradigm as a whole. This attitude toward a mathematical, mechanical conception of the world has so penetrated the consciousness of humanity that people have come to regard everything that can't be treated in this way as more or less unscientific. It was this feeling that was behind pronouncements such as Kant's, who said, in every domain of science, there's only so much real science as there's mathematics in it. We really ought to import a computation or geometry into all the sciences. But as we know, this program breaks down when we think how remote the simplest mathematical ideas are from those who study medicine, for instance. Our present division of the sciences gives a medical student practically nothing in the way of simple mathematical ideas. And so it happens that on the one hand, what's called astronomical knowledge has been set up as an ideal. Émile du Bois-Raymond has defined this in his address on the limits of the knowledge of nature by saying, we grasp truths in nature and satisfy our need for causal explanations only to the extent that we can apply the astronomical type of knowledge. That's to say, we regard the celestial phenomena in such a way that we draw the stars upon the chart of the sky and calculate with the material that's given to us there. We can state exactly, there's a star. It exercises a force of attraction upon other stars. We begin to calculate, having the different things to which our calculations apply visible before us. This is what we imported into astronomy in the first place. Now, let's contemplate, for example, the molecule. If it's complex, we find within it all kinds of atoms exercising a force of attraction upon each other, moving around each other. They constitute a little universe. 
We contemplate this molecule in the same way that we contemplate sidereal phenomena. We call that approach, quote, astronomical knowledge, close quote. We look upon atoms as little celestial bodies. We look upon the molecule as a little universe. And we're satisfied if we succeed. But then there's the great difference that when we look out into the starry sky, all the details are given to us. At most we can ask whether we comprehend them rightly, whether, after all, there might not be some other explanation than the one given by Newton. We spin a mathematical and mechanical web over the data. The web is actually something superadded, but it satisfies our modern sense of what's required by science. And now we import the system that we ourselves thought out and devised into an imagined world of atoms and molecules that our thinking has also imported into the picture. Here we add in thought what is otherwise given in experience. But we satisfy our so-called need for causal explanation by saying what we think of as the smallest particles moved in such and such a way is the objective basis of that which we experience subjectively as light, sound, warmth, etc. We carry the astronomical mode of knowledge into every phenomenon of the world, and thus we satisfy our demand for causality. Dubois Raymond asserts dryly, where one cannot do that, no scientific explanation is possible at all. You see, this claim should actually imply that if, for example, we wish to arrive at a rational form of therapy, that is to say, to gain insight into the efficacy of a drug, we would have to be able to regard the atoms in the substance of the remedy in the same way that we regard the movements of the moon, the sun, the planets, and the fixed stars. They would all have to become little cosmic systems. We would have to be able to calculate how this or that remedy would work. This was actually an ideal for some people not so very long ago. Now, they have given up such ideals. Such an idea collapses not only with reference to fields as remote as pharmaceuticals, but also in those lying nearer to hand, simply because our sciences are divided up as they are today. You see, modern physicians are educated in such a way that they master extraordinarily little of pure mathematics. We might talk to them, perhaps, about the need for knowledge of astronomy, but it would be of no use to speak about introducing mathematical ideas into their field of work. Yet, as we have seen, according to the modern notion, everything outside mathematics, mechanics, and astronomy should be classified as unscientific in the strict sense of the word. Of course, that doesn't happen. People regard these other sciences too as exact, but actually that's highly inconsistent. It is, however, characteristic of the present time that the demand for everything to be understood on the model of mathematical astronomy should have been made at all. Today it's really hard to get through to people about such things. Let me show you just how hard it is by giving you an example. You know, of course, that the question of the form of the human skull has played an important role in modern biology. 
I have also spoken about this matter many times in the course of our anthroposophical lectures. Goethe and Oken had magnificent premonitions regarding the human cranial bones. The school of Gegenbauer also performed classic research in this field. But in fact, nothing that could satisfy the urge for a deeper knowledge in this direction exists today. People argue about whether Goethe was right in saying that the skull bones are metamorphosed vertebra. But it's impossible to get through to people on this matter today because in the circles where these things are discussed, one would scarcely be understood. And where an understanding might be forthcoming, these things are not discussed because they're not of interest. You see, it's practically impossible today to form a close collaboration among a thoroughly modern medical doctor, a thoroughly modern mathematician, that is, one who has mastered higher mathematics, and someone who could understand both of them passably well. These three individuals could scarcely understand one another. The one who would sit in the middle, understanding both of them slightly, might be able in a pinch to talk a little with the mathematician and also with the physician. But the mathematician and the physician wouldn't be able to understand each other regarding important questions. Because what the physician would have to say about them wouldn't interest the mathematician. And what the mathematician would have to say, or would say if she found words at all, wouldn't be understood by the physician, who would be lacking the necessary mathematical background. That would become immediately obvious in an attempt to solve the problem I have just put before you. People imagine that if the cranial bones are metamorphosed vertebra, then we ought to be able to proceed directly through some kind of metamorphosis that it's possible to conceive spatially from the vertebra to the skull. To extend the idea still further to the long bones of the limbs would, on the basis of the accepted premises, be entirely out of the question. Modern mathematicians will be able, from their mathematical studies, to form an idea of what it really means when I turn a glove inside out, when I turn the inside to the outside. You have to keep in mind a certain mathematical treatment of the process by which what was formerly outside is turned inward, and what was inside is turned outward. Let me give you something schematic to show you what I mean. See figure 1 some sort of structure that's initially white on the outside and red inside. We'll treat this structure the way we did the glove, so that it's now red outside and white inside. See figure 2. But let's go further and imagine that we have something endowed with inner forces that can't be turned inside out as easily as a glove. Let's imagine something that still looks like a glove after being inverted. But now... Suppose that when we turn it inside out, a different field of forces arises. Suppose that we invert something which has different stresses on the outer surface from those on the inner. What we'll find then is that simply through the inversion, quite a new form arises. The form may appear thus, before we have reversed it, figure 1, we turn it inside out and now different forces come into consideration on the red surface and on the white, so that, perhaps, purely through the inversion, this form arises, figure 3. 
Such a form might arise merely through the process of inversion. When the red side faced inward, it wasn't able to develop its forces. But now, after it's been turned outward, it can develop them in a different way. And likewise with the white side, which can unfold its inherent forces only when it's been turned inward. Of course, it's entirely conceivable to treat such a subject mathematically, but people don't feel the slightest inclination to apply to reality what they've arrived at conceptually in such a way. The moment we learn to apply this to reality, however, we're able to see in our long bones or hollow bones, for example in the humerus or the femur or the tibia or the radius and ulna, forms which, when turned inside out, become our cranial bones. In the drawing, let the inside of the bone, as far as the marrow, be depicted by the color red and the outside by the color white, see figure 4. Certain constellations of forces, which can of course be investigated, are turned inward. And what we see when we draw away the muscle from the long bone is turned outward. But now imagine these hollow bones turned inside out by the same principle that I have just given you, in which other conditions of stress and strain are brought into play. Then you can easily obtain this form, figure 5. Now it has the white within, and what I indicated with the red comes to the outside. This is in fact the relationship of a cranial bone to a limb bone, and in between lies the typical bone of the back, the vertebra of the spinal column. You have to turn the hollow bone inside out like a glove, according to its indwelling forces. Then you obtain the cranial bone. The metamorphosis of the bones of the limbs into the cranial bones can be understood only by keeping in mind the process of inversion, or, quote, turning inside out, close quote. The full significance of this becomes apparent only if you imagine that what's turned outward in the limb bones is turned inward in the skull. The skull bones turn toward a world of their own in the interior of the skull. That is one world. The cranial bone is oriented inwardly, just as the limb bone is oriented outwardly toward the external world. This can be seen especially clearly in the case of osteology, Moreover, the human organism as a whole is so organized that it has on the one hand a cranial structure and on the other a limb system, the cranial structure being oriented inwardly, the limb system outwardly. The cranium contains a world directed inward, the limb system a world directed outward, and between the two is a kind of equilibrating system which supports rhythm. Take any of the literature dealing with the theory of mathematical functions or, say, with non-Euclidean geometry, and you'll see what countless ideas of every kind are brought forward in order to get beyond the ordinary geometrical conception of three-dimensional space, to extend the domain, to extend the concept of Euclidean geometry. You'll see what industry and ingenuity have been expended. But now, suppose that you've become a bigwig in mathematics, who knows complex analysis well and understands everything that can be understood today about non-Euclidean geometry. Now, I'd like to pose a question about many things that tend in this direction, 
parenthesis, forgive me if it seems derogatory to speak of these things in such trivial terms, but I'd like to do it nevertheless, and I ask the audience, especially trained mathematicians, to mull it over and consider whether I'm right about this. Close parenthesis. The question could be put as follows. So what exactly is the purchase of all this spinning out of purely mathematical thoughts? No one is interested in the field where it might perhaps be applied concretely. Yet, if we were to apply to the structure of the human organism all that has been thought out in non-Euclidean geometry, then we'd be in the realm of reality and applying immensely important ideas to reality rather than just giving ourselves over to unreal speculations. If mathematicians were trained in such a way that they could also be interested in what's real, in the appearance of the heart, for example, so that they could form an idea of a mathematical process through which they could turn the heart inside out, and how thereby the whole human gestalt would arise, if they could be guided to perform mathematics in that way, then they'd be doing math within the realm of the real. Then it would be impossible to have trained mathematicians, on the one hand, not interested in what the physician learns. And on the other hand, physicians who understand nothing of the ways in which mathematicians, though in a purely abstract element, are able to alter and metamorphose forms. This is the situation we have to transcend. Otherwise, our sciences will become stagnant. They're becoming ever more specialized, people no longer understand each other's language. So then how can science be transformed into a social science, as is implied in everything I will be saying in these lectures? A natural science that could lead over into a social science simply doesn't exist. On the one hand, we have astronomy, tending more and more to be clothed in mathematical ways of thinking. Astronomy has become so great in its present form just because it's a purely mathematical and mechanical science. But there is another scientific discipline which stands, as it were, at the pole opposite astronomy and which cannot be studied in its real nature without astronomy. It's impossible, however, as science is today, to build a bridge between astronomy and this other pole of science, namely embryology. We are studying reality only when we study, on the one hand, the starry skies, and on the other hand, the development of the human embryo. How is the human embryo usually studied today? Well, it's asserted that the human embryo arises from the interaction of two cells. The sex cells are gametes, male and female. These cells develop in the parental organism in such a way as to attain a certain state of independence before they're able to interact. Then they present a sort of antithesis, the one cell calling forth new and different possibilities of development in the other. All this is related to the female gamete. Scientists then work up a general theory of the cell on that basis. Scientists ask, what is a cell? As you know, since the first third of the 19th century, biology has been erected largely upon cell theory. The cell is described as a larger or smaller spherule, 
consisting of albuminous or protein-like substances. It has a nucleus within it of a somewhat different structure and around the hole is a membrane that's needed to create closure. In this way the cell has come to be seen as the building block of all organic life. The gametes are of a similar nature, but they're formed differently according to whether they're male or female, and from such cells every more complicated organism is built up. But now, what do we actually mean when we say that an organism builds itself up from such cells? The idea is that substances, otherwise found in nature, are taken up into these cells and then no longer work in quite the same way as in outer nature. If oxygen, nitrogen, or carbon are contained in the cells, the carbon, for instance, doesn't have the effect upon some other substance outside that it would have had before. Such power of direct influence has been withdrawn from it. Carbon is taken up into the organism of the cell and can work there only as conditions in the cell allow. That is to say, its influence is exerted not so much by the carbon directly, but rather by the cell, which makes use of the particular characteristics of carbon, having incorporated a certain quantity of it into itself. For example, what humans have within them in the form of metal, iron, for instance, works only in a circuitous way, via the cell. The cell is the building block. So in studying the organism, everything is traced back to the cell. Considering at first only the main bulk of the cell without the nucleus and membrane, we distinguish two parts, a transparent part composed of this fluid, and another part forming a sort of framework. Describing it schematically, we might say that the cell has a framework and that this framework is embedded, as it were, in the other substance, which, unlike the framework, is quite unformed. Thus, we have to think of the cell as consisting of a mass which remains fluid and unformed and a cytoskeleton which takes on a great variety of forms. This is then studied. The method of studying cells in this way has been pretty well perfected. Certain parts in the cell can be stained with color, others don't take the stain. Thus with carmine or safranin, or whatever coloring agent is used, we're able to see clearly the form of the cell, and thus we can acquire certain ideas about its inner structure, and we study that. We note, for instance, how the inner structure changes when the female germ cell is fertilized. We follow the different stages at which the cell's inner structure alters, how it divides, and how the parts become attached to one another cell upon cell, so that the whole becomes a complicated structure. All that is studied. But no one thinks to ask, with what is this whole life in the cell connected? What's really happening? It doesn't occur to anyone to ask that. What happens in the cell should be conceived in the following way, though, to be sure, I have to put it rather abstractly for now. There is the cell. For the moment, let's consider it in its most common form, namely the spherical form. 
This spherical form is partially determined by the thin fluid substance, and enclosed within it is the cytoskeleton. But what is the spherical form? The thin fluid mass is still left entirely to its own devices, and therefore it behaves according to the impulses received from its surroundings. What does it do? Well, it mirrors the universe around it. It takes on the form of the sphere, because it mirrors in miniature the whole cosmos, which we also imagine initially in the ideal form of a sphere. Every cell in its spherical form is nothing less than an image of the form of the whole universe. In the cytoskeleton inside, every line of the form is determined by its relationship to the structure of the whole cosmos. To put it schematically, think of the sphere of the universe with its imaginary boundary, see figure 7. In it you have a planet here and a planet there. They work in such a way as to exert an influence upon each other in the direction of the line that joins them. Here, let's say, schematically, of course, a cell is formed. Its outline mirrors the sphere. Here, within the cytoskeleton, it has a solid part, which is due to the working of the one planet on the other. And suppose that here there were another constellation of planets working upon each other along the line joining them. And here again there might be yet another planet, this one having no counterpart. Planet C distorts the whole construction, which might otherwise have been rectilinear. And the structure takes on a somewhat different form. And so you have in the whole formation of the cytoskeleton of the cell a reflection of the relationships existing in the planetary system, altogether in the whole starry system. You can enter quite concretely into the formation of the cell. And you'll reach an understanding of this concrete form only if you see in the cell an image of the entire cosmos. And now, take the female ovum and picture to yourselves that this ovum has brought the cosmic forces to a certain inner balance. They've taken on the form of the cytoskeleton and in a certain way they're at rest within it, supported by the female organism as a whole. Then the male gamete intercedes. The male gamete has not brought the macrocosmic forces to rest within itself, but rather it works in the sense of some kind of specialized force. Let's say that the male gamete works along precisely this line of force upon the female ovum, which has arrived at a condition of rest then this specialized force effects an interruption of the resting female gametes' equilibrium. The cell, which is in one sense an image of the whole cosmos, is thereby caused to open its microcosmic form once more to the interplay of forces. Initially the female ovum has come to rest, as the tranquil, arrested image of the entire macrocosm. Then, through the male gamete, the female gamete is torn out of the state of rest, and it's drawn again into a region of specialized activity and brought into movement. Previously, it had contracted into the resting form of an image of the cosmos. 
but that form is drawn into movement again by the male forces, which are, so to speak, images of movement. Through them, the female forces, which are images of the gestalt of the cosmos and have come to rest, are brought out of this state of equilibrium. Now, that would be an example of using astronomy to explain the form and shaping of something which is minute and cellular. Embryology cannot be studied at all without astronomy. For what embryology shows is only the other pole of what's seen in astronomy. We must, in a way, follow the starry heavens on the one hand, seeing how they reveal successive stages, and then afterward we must follow the process of development of a fertilized cell. They belong together, for the one is only the image of the other. If you understand nothing of astronomy, you never will understand the forces that are at work in embryology. And if you understand nothing of embryology, you'll never understand the meaning of the forces with which astronomy has to deal. For those activities appear in miniature in the processes of embryology. It's conceivable that a science might be formed in which, on the one hand, astronomical events are calculated and described, and on the other hand, everything is described that belongs to them in embryology which is only the other aspect of the same thing. Now, look at the state of the sciences today. You'll find that embryology is studied on its own. It would be regarded as madness if you were to suggest to modern embryologists that they should study astronomy in order to understand the phenomena in their own discipline. And yet, that's how it should be. And that's why a complete reorganization of the sciences is necessary. In the future, it will be impossible to become a real embryologist without having studied astronomy. It will no longer be possible to educate specialists who merely turn their eyes and their telescopes to the stars. For to study the stars in that way has no further meaning unless one knows that it is out of the great universe that the minute and microscopic is fashioned. In scientific circles, all of this, which is quite real and concrete, has been changed into the utmost abstraction. Think of a reality within which it makes perfect sense to say, we have to strive for astronomical knowledge in cytology, especially in embryology. If Dubois-Raymond had said that the detailed astronomical fact should be applied to cytology, he would have been drawing from a source in reality. But what he wanted, namely that something he just thought up, the atoms and molecules, should be examined with astronomical precision, corresponds to nothing real. After having added mathematical constructs to the world of the stars in astronomy, he went looking for them again. And so you see, on the one hand, we have what's real, movement, the active forces of the stars, and the embryonic development in which nothing lives except what lives in the starry heavens. That's where the reality lies. And that's where we have to look for it. Opposite these realities stand mere abstractions. Mathematicians and mechanics calculate the movements of the heavenly bodies and the forces they exert. 
and then they invent the molecular structure to which they apply this kind of astronomical knowledge. To think in this way is to withdraw from life and to live within pure abstractions. These are the things we have to contemplate, reminding ourselves that we are seeking to renew in full consciousness something that was present in a certain sense in earlier times. Looking back to the Egyptian mysteries, we find astronomical observations such as were made at that time. These observations weren't used merely to calculate when an eclipse of the sun or moon would take place, but also to arrive at what should be happening in social development. The ancient Egyptians were guided by what they saw in the heavens in deciding what should be said to the people, what instructions should be given, so that the whole of social life would take the right course. Astronomy and sociology were dealt with as one. Though in a way different from the Egyptians, we must also learn again how to connect what happens in social life with the phenomena of the macrocosm. We don't understand what came about in the middle of the 15th century if we can't relate the events of that time to the phenomena that appeared then in the universe. It would be like a blind person talking about color to speak of the changes in the civilized world in the middle of the 15th century without taking all this into account. Anthroposophy is already a starting point. But we won't succeed in bringing together the complicated domain of sociology, social science, with the science of nature, unless we first begin by connecting astronomy with embryology, correlating the facts of embryology with astronomical phenomena. All of this by way of an introduction. We'll take up these thoughts again tomorrow. The end of Lecture 1